0: Welcome to the Get World Savvy podcast. I'm your host, Ivy Xu. On Get World Savvy, we have fascinating conversations with some of the top leaders and disruptors in tech and tech-enabled businesses across industries and across geographies. You'll hear from experts in the fast-growing markets in the world, as well as more established startup nations on their predictions on industry trends, growth opportunities, and how to best position yourself to ride the wave up. In between, I'll be here doing some solo shows as well to help fill in some knowledge gaps. Join the community of listeners, a global network of ambitious, impact-hungry professionals in tech at Get World Savvy Network on Facebook. Today, I'm here with Alex Lazaro. Alex is a global venture capitalist with Cathay Innovation, a global firm that invests across Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. He is also the author of Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. Now, this is a book that is released today, April 7th, when this podcast airs. Now, I'm so excited to have Alex on Get World Savvy because we have a very similar mission in life to help entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people in general see that the future of innovation is actually happening now all outside of Silicon Valley. Being from North America, we know the playbook of building a startup. You go to Silicon Valley to soak in and be part of the mindset, culture, and really the movement of innovation. If you're looking to raise capital, most of the capital in the world is deployed there, where an idea with no users can be worth $12 million. I'm not even kidding about that. Go look at some of the companies raising out of Y Combinator just last month. They're raising millions in competitive markets with a recession coming without even achieving product market fit yet. If you want talent, the best software engineers are graduating from Stanford and Berkeley and the best in the world already moved to Silicon Valley. If you're looking for customers, B2B companies, also based in Silicon Valley, are ready to invest with their venture money. And if you're building for consumers, then all the techies living in the Bay Area are ready to try new things. Go lean. Software is eating the world, says Mark Andreessen. Low costs, go asset light, focus on one part of the value chain. 90% of startups fail. Investors want to see growth, fund young, ambitious founders like the next Zuckerberg, and so on. Those are the principles and values of Silicon Valley. But it doesn't have to be this way. All over the world, we see startups defying all that that of the values and principles we hold in Silicon Valley in creating a startup. We see more than 10% of startups succeed. We see startups needing to build infrastructure and asset-heavy businesses all across the value chain and then turn into super apps. We see most of the founders, instead of being young, soylent, drinking, new grads, instead be repats coming back to their home countries after working extensively in multiple markets and drawing inspiration and experiences from them all. A great place to start learning about the global startup ecosystem and innovation beyond Silicon Valley is this episode. And then it's Alex's new book. And then it's also the Get World Savvy podcast community on Facebook. All these links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me here, Alex.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So let's just start with, tell me more about your experiences and what led you to write Out Innovate.
1: So I've spent most of my career at the intersection of innovation, investing, and social impact. By day, I'm a venture capitalist. I work for a fund called Cathay Innovation. It's a globally focused venture firm investing across Asia, Europe, Africa, and Latin America and affiliated with a private equity group called Cathay Capital, and that's my day job. And outside of work, I've been teaching an MBA class on global entrepreneurship with the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, which is Middlebury College's graduate program in Monterey. And many of my students were, after they graduate, moving back to their hometowns or moving to emerging markets to build startups. And I kept assigning my students books on entrepreneurship but they were all incredibly Silicon Valley-centric and shared lessons on growing at all costs or what have you. And I was really frustrated because I always had to contextualize what I was sharing with a series of articles and blogs about what it's like to actually build startups in more challenging ecosystems. And so that was the, the genesis of the book. The title of the book is called Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit Are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. And the thesis really is that Everything we think we know about startup best practice is rooted in a time and a place, Silicon Valley and today, and for a very particular type of asset-like software-based startup that wants to grow extraordinarily fast. And yet, around the world, some of the best entrepreneurs are operating ecosystems that, that just look different, that have less capital, that have less depth of trained startup human capital, or that more regularly face macroeconomic shocks. And I think that. The best entrepreneurs operating in Chicago or Denver or Amsterdam or Bangalore or Nairobi have more in common with the best entrepreneurs in Sao Paulo than they do with those in San Francisco. And yet, no one is telling their stories. No one is telling, telling the stories of how entrepreneurs have scaled startups and ecosystems that look different than what the Valley is. And that's why I wrote the book.
0: The book touches a lot on frontier innovators, and you've named a few already in the previous question when you were explaining the differences. Can you explain deeper on who these frontier innovators are and what the differentiators are between them and Silicon Valley?
1: Yeah, and you know, I think it's tricky because I talk about the frontier and I label it as, you know, there's this other area, but the reality is there's a lot of nuance there. And it isn't as simple as saying there's Silicon Valley and not Silicon Valley. And I think there's a couple axes where you might say, look, there's some nuance. Uh, One might be how developed the country is. As you say, there are some countries that are more developed, and you might say the United States is there. And the other side is there are more developing countries. Another axis is how developed is the startup ecosystem? So how much venture capital dollars are there? What is the access to trained talent? How many corporates have innovation departments? What have you? And some have much deeper Ecosystems and others have much shallower. And so that kind of gives you, in some ways, a simplified way to think about it as a two by two matrix where, you know, on one corner, maybe top right, you have high developed market and high ecosystem intensity. And you might say Silicon Valley is there. Perhaps you put Tel Aviv or London or a couple other major cities there. Maybe bottom left, you say, look, that's a developing market and a developing startup ecosystem. You know, maybe that's something like Kinshasa or something like that. And then you have other ecosystems, right? Developed. Developed startup ecosystem in a developing market. Maybe you think of Bangalore, for instance, or Sao Paulo in Brazil. And perhaps you say, look, a developed, developed country, perhaps an emerging startup ecosystem. I'd say, you know, maybe my hometown of Winnipeg might fit in that category. And so within that, there's a lot of nuance. And so I think it's important to remember as you think about the book that it's not a recipe book. It isn't a do A, B, C, and you will get success. It's much more of a menu where when confronted with particular situations entrepreneurs are trying to grapple with, they should think about what are my peers that have also been in those situations, how have they dealt with it, and what can I learn from them. And when it resonates, apply, and when it doesn't, discard. And so that's what the frontier is and how I think about it and why I think there's a certain amount of nuance in, uh, in what is being built and how to, how to replicate it.
0: So clearly, during my travels all last year, when I go to a lot of emerging markets, many want to take inspiration from China that has developed really fast because they're more likely to be aligned within the same quadrant. So it's quite obvious that you should learn from other startup ecosystems within the same quadrant that you were talking about, um, two by two with developing market and developed startup ecosystem. But what about those that are not within the same cluster? within the ecosystem why should silicon valley learn from those that are places that are not as developed and what will happen if they don't learn from these places
1: well so first one thought which is that i don't necessarily believe that only startups within the same cluster can learn from each other i think one of the things that's really striking about how innovation is working today is what i call the innovation supply chain so it used to be that silicon valley or some startup Uh, More advanced startup ecosystems would come up with an idea, and they'd scale it in one country, it would get copycatted everywhere. And we saw a lot of that in in kind of Web 1.0. What's happening now is actually the innovation is coming from everywhere, and it's getting improved everywhere. And that then has ripple effects back to even the originals. And you even think of ride-sharing, for instance, which emerged in the valley, right, Uber and Lyft. Um, It got replicated all over the world. The most successful in terms of sheer volume of rides is a Chinese company, is DD that dwarfs Uber and Lyft in size. But that model also got adapted in some interesting ways. So uh, one example I love is the story of Gojek in Indonesia, where instead of taxis, they're Ojeks, they're little motorcycles. And Nadim, the CEO, his vision when he built the company was actually radically different than how Uber and Lyft thought about it, where His vision was that he would have the drivers drive people to work in the mornings at lunch. They would deliver meals after work. They would drive people home in the evening. Perhaps they would deliver meals. And during the day they would do a huge huge slew of other services like delivering e-commerce packages, or uh, he's got a mobile banking uh, system or which is cash in cash out. And so he thought of the drivers as this ecosystem of assets and tried to employ them in a full way. And by the way, that innovation has flown back to as Silicon Valley. It's no surprise that Uber now has Uber Eats and now has a credit card, and so we're seeing this bilateral exchange of ideas, which I think is powerful. So that's the first idea. The second is why does it matter, and I think that's an incredibly important one. I think there's a short term example of why it matters, and then I think there's a long term example of why it matters. In the short term, we're at a unique time as we're dealing with Corona and and the world, and you know in the Valley the best practice on how to build startups has been really built in a time of abundance. Think of blitzscaling and growth at all costs type of methodologies works extraordinarily well when the market is stable, when there's a lot of capital, and when things are going well. But when things aren't going well, you need another model. And that model, I believe, exists in more emerging ecosystems. And what I call a camel, which is this opposite of the unicorn chasing approach. It's building businesses that focus on balanced growth. Of course, they are focused on growth. Of course, they're looking for network effects and all of the things that make startups successful, but also they're doing it from a position of weaving sustainability and resiliency into the business model much earlier. And so I'm seeing them thinking about building sustainable unit economics from the get-go, managing costs, taking a long-term view. These, these tried and true approaches, which are not fancy on the surface, but actually just make intuitive sense in the way you would, you would tackle these are are the lessons you can take from the valley. So as we're trying to manage this crisis, I think there's a very short-term reason why, why we should pay attention. But I think the more interesting question is the long-term one, which is what does this mean for us over the next 10, 15, 20 years of Silicon Valley and, frankly, innovation's journey? I believe that Silicon Valley is the best or one of the best places to innovate today. And I think it will continue to be a bastion of innovation going forward. But I also believe that innovation ecosystems are going to spur all over the world. And today there's already 480 startup ecosystems around the world. And we're going to see that certain pockets are going to be way better at Silicon Valley for specific things. We're going to see a specialization and innovation ecosystems are going to rise. And so, you know, we might see cities like Minneapolis who are close to a bunch of healthcare companies have a really strong healthcare ecosystem, really become strong at that. We might see Amsterdam become strong at something different. We might see X, Y, and Z other city uh, rise in different ways. And so that is the proliferation of what the innovation ecosystems will look like. And Silicon Valley will have an opportunity to learn from all of them. And if it doesn't, I think we fear, I fear that Silicon Valley could also have a Detroit moment. A hundred years ago, the Silicon Valley of the time was Detroit. And that was where all the world's entrepreneurs went. And there were hundreds of car companies. And the big three were in the U.S. But then what, what happened? All of a sudden, innovation took root everywhere. And today, the biggest three car companies are not in the U.S. They're international. And different parts of the world are known for different things. Germany is known for raw engineering. Toyota is known for, and Japan is known for just-in-time manufacturing and reliability Italy is known for the most beautiful, sexy cars that go really fast, right? Like every part of the world has innovated and now Detroit needs to learn from the rest of the world. It also, by the way, needs to learn from Silicon Valley on electrification of cars and what Tesla's doing. And I think that's the exact same thing that could happen to the Valley over time. And I think to get ahead of it, I think learning these lessons is critical.
0: And how close are we being from Silicon Valley in actually dropping our ego and looking out to the rest of the world, because everyone knows about the Silicon Valley bubble that everyone is working on these even you defined as incremental changes instead of world changing innovations where I really felt like I needed to get out in order to find my inspiration. And that's why I started traveling last year. So how do entrepreneurs, whether in talent or in mindset, compare between established ecosystems versus frontier, which always feel like they're kind of behind and need to learn from everyone else. Just taking an example, when I was in China, I learned about a lot of product pushes and what's happening in Silicon Valley faster through Chinese media than through my Subscriptions to the information and U.S. media, and this is the same when I was in Cairo, when I was in Nairobi. They're paying attention to the East and the West, while in Silicon Valley, we barely get any coverage on anything outside of it.
1: Well, you are very well traveled, and that's uh, we should have a longer conversation. I want to hear about all all these all these trips. But I think the macro point I would say is this idea of cross pollinators. I think that one of the things that is very distinctive among the best entrepreneurs that I've interviewed is the lived experience they have. They defy the stereotype of the 22-year-old hooded warrior in the valley. And they're by and large folks that have worked across a number of industries. They've worked across a number of functions. They've lived across a number of places. And so they're able to tap knowledge and inspiration, but also networks and capital and bringing it together to scale their businesses. And so as a result, I actually think that is that is a really powerful thing is is this differentiated network and experience and age in building startups. And, and that tends to be correlated with it. So I think that's one of the areas where, where I've seen a distinct trend.
0: Yeah. I kind of want to ask about when you're mentioning that a lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are trained to start companies in a world where it's very abundant. And now we're heading towards a more uh okay, I don't want to knock on wood recession, but what do you think will happen in the next three years, three to five years, to Silicon Valley itself? What how will the ecosystem change? What kind of companies will arise and how can Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and want to be entrepreneurs, actually not just Silicon Valley, the world's want to be entrepreneurs at this point? What should they be doing? to prepare for this recession and be educating themselves on.
1: So one of the lessons in the book, and I alluded to this earlier, was this notion of the camel and it's how do you build a business that is sustainable and resilient? And I chose the camel because unlike the unicorn, it's a real animal. It can sprint when needed, but it can also drink water when it's available faster than almost anything, but it can also survive in the world's harshest conditions. And Some of the ways they do that is, one, is it isn't about subsidizing growth, but it's really about providing value and charging for the value that's created. And it isn't about burning a lot of capital to accelerate revenue. It's burning the right amount of capital and managing costs to be able to get to sustainability and resiliency when needed and as needed. And third is taking a long-term view. And if you were going to ask me what I'd predict, I'd predict that we're going to see the camel become popular again. And it isn't about playing defense. It's still about playing offense and tr- still trying to build a successful, growing, scaled company. But it's doing it from a position where resiliency is important. I interviewed um, Grubhub, which uh, on-demand delivery uh, company. What's amazing is when we think of that sector, we think of these really venture-backed companies. And indeed, a lot of Grubhub's competitors that have emerged in recent years. They received a lot of venture capital funding. But Grubhub was sustainable at every single fundraise and raised less than $100 million before they got to their, uh, to their IPO and venture dollars. And, and those are pretty paltry amounts, right? And when you compare it to the Valley. And when I interviewed Mike, he talked, look, like it took us eight years to IPO, could have done it in six years, but would have done it at way more risk, right? Would have done it by having to take more capital, would have done it by having to not be sustainable every step of the way. And I think that that mentality is shifting, right? I think we're going to shift towards building startups that have sustainable revenues, unit economics, and business models that really work, Um, and not just really work in theory at high, high scale, but work now and also in the medium term as well.
0: So knowing that and knowing that we should be doing that, everyone in the world should be doing that, and we're looking towards different markets for these inspiration, where should we be looking as in we should we be looking for learning about business models should we be looking at launch strategies should we be looking at hiring strategies which parts like should entrepreneurs start at because if we just take the typical want to be entrepreneur from silicon valley and we're like please go learn from these frontier innovators what should they be even thinking about acquiring from them
1: in the book i talk about a couple different thematic areas that I think really matter beyond this philosophical approach that translates to very tactical strategies on how to build a business towards being a capital. So I think that's one. I think two is if you're an entrepreneur that's operating in a more emerging ecosystem, that's a smaller market. I think by necessity, you have to think about being born global. You have to build a business that can scale across a bunch of different markets. This isn't just to raise your, your total addressable market, your TAM, but it's also to be able to learn, to be able to play offense, because if you don't grow, others will come to your market. So I think how do you do that? How do you build an organization, a culture, and a product that can scale and adapt across a bunch of different geographies is, is an art and not a science and one where I think there's a lot of value to learn from other entrepreneurs. And so I think that's a second Tactical area. And the third, you alluded to it on team. You know, I think there's really three critical resources that go into a company. One is inspiration and idea, right, of a business model. The second, if in many cases, is some capital. And the third is the team. And that I would say, arguably, is the most important. And I think that talent is distributed evenly, but opportunity, unfortunately, is not. And in many ecosystems, there isn't the same depth of trained startup human capital. Um, there aren't there this army of been there, done that. I've scaled a company before. And so as a result, I think the attitude of, hey, look, I'm just going to hire eight players just doesn't work because there isn't this, this really deep talent pool. You have to think a lot more about how you're going to build an A team. And that goes the whole gamut of strategies to find and recruit, to second, grow and retain. And third is, is really kind of building your culture. And so I think that's a third area where I think there's some pretty tactical approaches that you can learn from emerging market, but frankly, just frontier entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah. I should have used that word tactical in the question. I think you you hit it spot on. Another question, actually digging deep into the book, actually was your first chapter about creating industries over disrupting industries. I personally find that that would be easier to do by myself going to an emerging market and bringing in something that clearly does not exist there yet but might exist in a different market and this industry my inspiration will just come from somewhere else but how would that work the other way around where everything imaginable to us has already been created in a first world country such as the US and I'm also based in Canada there are problems to be solved but is there any inspiration that we can take from abroad to bring in like an industry that doesn't exist that can help the people here
1: yeah. William Gibson once wrote, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I, I really believe that. And I think there's a lot we can learn from entrepreneurs around the world. And I think you're right that in developed markets, we already have more things. And, and it's different than in emerging markets where there are much bigger uh, market gaps. And as a result, I think entrepreneurs are creators. They're not disruptors. And the value of this notion of being a disruptor of Of disrupting a new industry an old industry with a new product or service or attitude and in emerging ecosystems usually there's nothing to disrupt you're creating a financial product you're creating a healthcare product you're creating a um, education offering or what have you and often you're serving customers for the first time it's a mass market solution it really has this ecosystem impact and so i think one is you know obviously if you're Creating an education system—it's hard to just bring that back to North America and say, "Hey, look, we're going to do that." Right? Like, I think, I think, I think, I think. Obviously, it's just totally different context. But I think you can bring back this attitude of saying, "Look, there are major, massive social challenges everywhere along the world. In you know, in the Valley, we have homelessness, we have a range of uh, healthcare challenges, etc. And taking this creator's attitude is really powerful. And so, I think that's the argument I'm making in the book. But I also believe that there's some really interesting technical business things that can be replicated from what's happening in emerging markets. And you know, to put it in numbers, it took PayPal a long time to really get to the scale it is today and Paytm less than half the time, I believe. Mm-hmm. The world leader in mobile banking on feature phones is in Kenya. The biggest digital bank uh, is in Brazil. It's Bank, right? And so I think there's a lot we can learn from a lot of these emerging market ecosystems. And we haven't even talked about China where what's happening with the super app ecosystem is inspiring a range of companies around the world, for instance. And so I think we're going to see more and more of that over time where there isn't just an attitude shift that we can learn, but to tie back to this innovation supply chain point that we were discussing earlier, I think there's certain ideas. that are specific or germane to particular business models that will be able to inspire us back here in the Valley as well.
0: So I went out and did and I actually went and studied these things, right? Like a lot of the things, the companies in your book, I actually personally spoke with as well. Awesome. But now coming back, holding all these lessons, like I learned what succeeding in different regions, what business models are doing well in different regions, but coming back, I don't know what to do with this information.
1: Start a podcast.
0: Yes, that is what I did. because To like help more people understand. And I do know that there are different concepts that can be brought here in simplest terms, different gamification, social commerce from China, but yeah. you would have to twist it to work within the U S. But now I know all these different things. I don't even know. I don't think I have a question. I think the answer is that you take this concept and you localize it and you play with it until it works for the exist- your current market. And I love just- that
1: answer. It's exactly what I would have said. Yeah. And it's, it's tough to give really specifics unless we get really in the meat of the idea mm-hmm. that you're thinking about. But I think at the highest level, I think that the lesson is one, you can't just copy paste. You have to draw inspiration, but I think you need to really understand how it works. And one example that I have in the book is matrimony.com, which is an Indian site that tries to bring people together and sets up marriages, but they're doing that in the context of arranged marriages. And so this doesn't look like match.com or Tinder or something like that. Um, in their case, they're setting up meets meetings where the families show up as well. Uh, one of the features they had to build was a background check on the guys because the female's mom wanted to check uh, who the guy was and where he had gone to school or what have you. And so they had to build all these different features that we, we would have had. And, and I think that model would never have worked if the CEO didn't deeply understand what was required. So I, I, think, I think that's really important, but I also think the fact that he had and you have a global network is really powerful in terms of being able to bring and leverage, and not just as a one point in time, but over time, what are the lessons to building a startup, right? You, you might have the idea in the short term, but you're going to enta- encounter a snag or a, a challenge down the road and being able to leverage that network mm-hmm. and to figure out a solution. And, and by the way, give back the other way as well and help your fellow entrepreneurs that are going through similar challenges. I think, I think that's, that's kind of this cross-pollinators mindset. And so you should take that forth.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that piece of advice. Okay, final question. I'm curious from my own perspective, uh, because I'm also trying to advocate for global-minded leaders to gain knowledge and network across industries and across different geographies, are there other communities or advocates, movements that I don't know about with that same cause that you and I have?
1: What I think is really exciting is that there's a lot of them that are starting to bubble up. On the international front, I think one of the best organizations is Endeavor, which has really done a tremendous job fostering local startup ecosystems in more emerging ecosystems, uh, in emerging countries, starting in LATAM and now all over the world. In the US, organizations like Techstars, are really ahead of the game, but we're seeing a really big movement in, in the US with what Rise of the Rest is doing or the Comeback Cities Tour, et cetera. And those are really popping up. And so I think that if you fast forward five, 10 years, we'll have both of these global organization type things and we'll have a range of much more local, local powerful ones as well that really spur on uh, startup ecosystems.
0: Awesome. Well, that was the last question, but I do have a final round quickfire that I ask everyone at the end. Okay. Um, in the industry that you're in, what is a opportunity that you think people are not seeing and that they should take advantage of more?
1: In which industry are you referring to? For you,
0: um, you can assume what, whatever I'll one you want take, to, I'll take to the you the venture capitalist. identify with.
1: So I I often ask my students where they think the venture capital models come from. And uh, they'll often say, hey, look, I think it came from Silicon Valley, or that was where it was invented. In fact, the model is much older, right? It originated in New Bedford in the whaling industry, where the merchants funded a number of whaling boats. So they were essentially, in some ways, modern day venture capitalists. The captains got, put a little bit of the money up themselves, uh, but got a disproportionate share of the profits. They were a little bit like the entrepreneurs. And the crew are a little bit like employees and they got their share of the profits, literally what they carried off the boat. And in some ways, that's one of the reasons carry, carried interest is called carry. We think of that, like that model was adapted very successfully to the Silicon Valley entrepreneurship model, but it works in that context. And if you think about what's happening everywhere around the world, the context is different. And in some places there's less capital available. In other places, people are building businesses that are more resilient and might not grow with. The exponential shape, and, or they might take longer. And so I think that there's some really interesting developments that are early in the venture capital space, but I think may change it. And so three of them that I think are exciting. One is longer term funds, so beyond the 10-year horizon, things like evergreen firms. One of the largest emerging market investors is NASPERS, and they're essentially a publicly traded holding company, an evergreen structure. I think second are experiments around different types of investments. So instead of investing in a whaling industry model, what about other high-risk industries? And so another model is the mining industry, which is a royalty or revenue share. And so there's some really interesting experiments around that. And the third is around computerized decision making, around not just making a decision based on uh, the entrepreneur being within driving distance of the VC and kind of this interpersonal dynamic and pattern matching, but also doing it based on hard numbers and comparing it to hundreds of other companies elsewhere. And so, you know, these are all very early, but I think will become meaningful trends over time and how venture is practiced and how it works. And so that would be my long answer to your very quick question.
0: Wow, awesome. That's definitely not something that i thought about before, like different models towards funding. I'm so looking forward to everyone else listening to this podcast and reading your book.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And
0: how can people find you?
1: So you can find me if you want to sign up for my newsletter at alexlazaro.com, A-L-E-X-L-A-Z-A-R-O-W. And you can also buy the book out innovate how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley anywhere books are sold, including on Amazon. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, I'll add those all to the show notes as well. Thank awesome. you, Alex.
1: Okay, awesome. Thank you.